Good afternoon, everybody. It's a little past three, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to Read Aloud. We're very fortunate this week that we can highlight um, two of our OSU library colleagues that are both writers. And Latina Moss is going to go first, and um, I'll let each of our writers introduce their material to you. And then Cheryl Lowry will follow her up with um, a selection from her book. Thanks so much for coming. There's refreshments at the back if you'd like anything, and just relax and enjoy yourself. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Latina Moss, and today I'm going to read one of my memoirs and also a play. The first memoir I'm reading is Supernatural Being. The raven-colored large body relaxed at the edge of the driveways with eyes intently greeting each visitor. It was those yellowish-green eyes. It was those cold-black linear pupil relaying his quest. He came from another side of the wood, wandering through the deep woods until he reunited with her. There was a mysterious air about this guardian. I had seen him before. I had felt his spirit. He was a quiet soul with a mystic spirit overseeing the ponds, the fields, the houses, and the herds. The raven-colored large body never barked nor howled. He perched himself while inspecting each person as they drove to and fro the land. It kept me an in-house hostage while visiting this long distance. Great Auntie told me that she tried shooing him away. She tried scaring him with its shotgun by pumping and blasting bullets into the air. He would leave his land and he would come back later. She gave up and began feeding him. I, the city girl, produced courage to go outside with great auntie as she fed him along with the other animals. She fed the largest cat with the sharpest teeth. I later found out it was a bobcat. Then I told her, that is the strangest dog I had ever seen in my life. Great auntie smiled a warm smile towards me while shaking her head. As she spooned the large bucket of leftovers into a huge open garbage can, lid she used as a dish. He sprang up in mid-air devouring its contents. I ran out of my sh shoes yelling to great auntie, this is not a dog, this is a wolf. <laughs> she chuckled and said, child I know, but he will not leave here. He has been here for months. A little while after I became ill, I ran into the house and told her daughter about the wolf. She said, cousin, that's daddy out there. You know daddy always took care of mama. It was then I knew it was Uncle Bill. Those eyes. The same color, the quietness, the intensity, the secure and mysterious feelings when looking to his eyes. The welcome to our home at the edge of the driveway. And the escorting to the end of the woods when we would head back north. This guardian canine was the transformation of my beloved Uncle Bill. The wolf trotted along the vehicles as an armored soldiers until the end of the woods. And then he returned to his spot, his throne, his driveway. 
Uncle Bill left great auntie over a quarter of a century ago, leaving her with the comforts of the American dream. He was good to her and she was good to him. Their love never perished. His patriarch essence never left their farm. She fought and retained his land and their richness. The land of Massa had assured that no one would ever take from his mulatto lineage. The strong ebony matriarch became physically weak to sickness. The guardian wolf allowed no one to come near him except for my dear grandma, who flew a great distance to visit great auntie. I warned grandma about this mystifying canine. Grandma sat at the edge of the porch. The wolf walked up to her, sat behind her, and let her rub his ear. The wolf looked at her and then went back towards the edge of the driveway. The wolf guarded great auntie for two years until she finished her earthly deeds. Shortly after auntie left us, the large raven-colored wolf and its yellowish-green eyes disappeared and has never been seen again. Thank you. Any questions on that one? <laughs> okay. Take a little sip in between. The second one that I am reading is a play called Grave Reviews. And I'll tell you a little bit about this one. Uh, I was writing a novel uh, called Public Transit, and one of my characters was a son of a single mother, and he had lost his father when he was very young. So I was trying to find some things out, or just I was thinking, what can I say? how he missed his father through growing up through the years since he was so young. So these ideas just kept popping back and forth into my mind until I had like 12 pages of an idea. I'm like, I can make this into a play. So I was trying to do a short story play, and that's how it ended. So, grave reviews. Okay. Fourth of July. Man walks on a dim, lit stage with fireworks, sound blasting the lights. He holds a cloth designer tote bag with a red, white, white and blue roof inside and a plastic bottle of cola. He unzips his chair bag, pulls out, opens his chair, places a green grass in front of the tombstone with flesh flowers on it. Hi, Dad. It is me today. For today, I come to visit you for the first time since you left me. I bought you something. Yes, see? He stands up and raises his hands and turns around. I am a man now. I have grown into a fine man. I was in town today and it came over me that I have one more void that needs to be filled. Uncle Jun was a good male figure in my life. He continued to play throw and catch with me. Remember how you used to take the football and continue to throw at... It at me, never letting me give up until I caught it. I have mastered the game now. 
Today is the 4th of July. All the fireworks and people out are in fanfare. I bought you a wreath. I hope it reminds you of the colors that you fought for. You will be so proud. Last month, I have been out of town, out of college for 10 years. I have a family now. My wife, Kyra, and my son, Deshaun, went out of town to visit her family yesterday. You remember you told me that one day I will be a man and must learn to stand up for what I believe in. I have conquered that quality. For years, I viewed your pictures on mom's dresser, searching in your eyes for the man I thought you wanted me to be. Mom would say, son, what is it? She knew I had questions that she could not answer. I'd answer nothing and walk out of the room. One day she came and caught me looking at your picture with great admiration. I was about 12 at the time. She hugged me and told me that I was the epitome of you. She told me that since the day you left. He takes a swig of his pop. Oh yeah, someone said you love this brand of cola. I have the same taste, the same voice, the same built, and the same temperament. Excuse me. May I shed some tears? They have buried deep within my soul. I feel them about to stain my face, for I choke with emotion. It is not that I'm letting you down. I never cried in front of anyone. (coughs) He lets his tears flow. He sits down in a chair. Thank you, Dad. Thank you for letting me expel this pain, for it has been hidden under the layers of life. My life. My life. The life without you. The life through your pictures. I love you, Dad. See you next month. Then the curtain close. August. It's his dad's birthday. He sings happy birthday to you. The song ends with a happy birthday to Dad. And he sits in the chair and opens his cola. You would have been 62 years old today. What a waste in life. My birthday parties were pretty awesome growing up. I had cartoon character parties, sleepovers, and a bomb teenager swim parties at Aunt Sweetie's house. I imagine you today looking like me, maybe a 20 pounds larger, with the gray blended in your beard. He stands up, rubs his beard, and sits back down. I imagine we would be celebrating. You and Mom together kissing, and you would reserve a big hug and handshake for me. As you know, after you, Mom never did remarry. Your daughter, I'll call her little sis. She is doing well for herself. She hasn't found Mr. Wright, as she call it. She's a teacher now, very smart. It runs in the family, doesn't it? I have something to ask you, but I want on your birthday. I will wait another time. I want this to be your special day, for I never remember you celebrating with me. You were always overseas. Here is your present. This is the closest related card considering the circumstances. To the best dad I never met. Although I always missed you, I always knew you were here. I feel your spirit within me. It lets me know you're near. I vow to make you proud. Follow in your footprints to stand up and be a man. Characteristic of you will not leave me for my life with you were planned. Without you were planned. I'm sorry. Love your son. He begins pulling out photos from the box from his youth and showing them to his dad. This is when I was 14. This is when I went to the prom. This is when I was a captain of the football team. 
This is my college picture. Yes, I pledge. He stands up and do a fraternity step. This is my wife and your grandson picture. Chip off the old block, huh? Well, happy birthday, Dad, again, and I'll talk to you next time. Labor Day. A man's labor is never enough. I am off today, so I'm headed home. I called my wife and son today. She has a honeydew this long when I get home. It will be a good project for me and son. We blend, talk, and bond. I take him shopping. It's the designer and name brand generation now. Chuck Taylor got plenty of competition. Sometimes I get so overwhelmed with tax, but I just keep pushing on. Then when I have had enough, I take a nice vacation. I get with some good friends, go fishing, play a little b-ball. He fakes a basket. My friends and I chat about life issue, jobs, and world issues, but sometimes I need a little bit more. When I was younger, I used to watch older men. I would listen and I would ask them questions. I would wonder if your answers would be different. There is something, a new meaning to 9-11, a day Americans will never forget. Heroes came in all types of uniforms. Civilians sacrificed their lives. On 9-11, Americans united for at least for a few months. Dad, you would have been perplexed about the attack, but once again, you would have been proud you served. The U.S. military is now stronger than ever. I would wonder what type of action would the military have taken on 9-11 in the era you served. He looks at his watch and he says, time to go to the family for a backyard burger queue. Ribs and a hamburger awaits me. Columbus Day. Good afternoon, Dad. I am between meetings today. This will be a short visit. Today is your grandson's birthday. He wants books, video games, and clothes. He is growing like mad. He, his looks are between me and my wife. It is good to watch him grow. I try to enhance his environment with all the love and knowledge that I knew you would have given me. Last night, my wife and he drove down in order to celebrate. I was helping him with his homework on my laptop computer. Dad, since you have left, computers are available to everyone. Business, schools, home. Yes, Big Brother is definitely peering at us from somewhere. You remember how Unc used to talk about Big Brother and we would laugh and think he was weird? No, Big Brother is just another way of life. Just as when the automobile was inducted into society. Oh man, these cars nowadays are out of sight. There are some awesome luxury mobiles. You can practically live in them. The freeways are beginning to get just as congested as the great American traffic jams used to get stuck in. Oh, here is the sweetest day card I bought for my wife. She's the sweetest woman I met since mom. I love her dearly, daddy. But sometimes I'm not sure how to reply to some of her moods. I just give her space, talk to God. Sometimes a buddy of mine and read some of those women magazines. I guess I do pretty well. She says, I sometimes should tap into my feminine side. I told her, whoa, slow down. Ain't nothing feminine here. (laughs) 
She laughs and agree with me on that note. Another holiday for the big pocket. It seems to be some kind of holiday and celebration once a week. I call it a subliminal consumer spending control. The controversy about the man who found America is almost replaced in history books by Alif Erickson. However, the name of his holiday still is celebrated this month. I cannot wait until the history books are changed to tell the truth about slavery and black American Black Americans are beginning to learn more of their roots. They are following the guide of this one man who traced his back to Africa. Finally, reunions are becoming popular. Some secrets are still guarded until you get a certain age. I guess they are waiting for me to get to the golden age since you are not around to pass them down. Well, it's time to go to my next appointment. And I'll just read one more because it's kind of long. This is Christmas Kwanzaa. Merry Christmas, Dad. I escaped that mad house at Big Mama's house. Everybody was there, lots of love floating around. That ride to Grandma's house is still an hour and 15 minutes long from here. All highways, small towns, and no freeways. We had to leave early to get back to the airport since the airport is in the city. I dropped my wife and son off to the cousins to get their belongings. This is a small world. Who would ever think that I would meet someone who have relatives here? About a year after you left, we moved about 300 miles away from here. Here you go. Remember, this love must be shared. He takes a piece of hard cake and tosses it to the grave marker. Your sister, my auntie is still trying to copy Aunt Tilly's recipe. She sure hasn't mastered it in all these years. I take a piece because she always insists. It is the family secret. Everybody takes a slice not to hurt her feelings, but you can see all kinds of pieces of remains left in the cake plates and mounds of crumbs in the garbage. Everybody's walking around drinking lots of water and punch milk, anything to chug it down. (laughs) Unc was sitting over in the corner pretending like he was eating it and winking at me. Someone should tell her that Aunt Tilly took that recipe secret along with her. (laughs) I didn't have time to toss it out because she hugged me and escorted me out after she wrapped it up for me. Big Mama doing fine. She is getting up there in age. She doesn't cook like she used to, but she watches over pots and tells the cooks how to season and stir. He opens his thermos, pours out some hot cider in a cup, and takes a swig. Ah, getting a little nippy out here. Dad, I always was happy on Christmas. Mom would lay us out with gifts and toys. We would play with our toys, enjoy family and friends. Every year we would go to church play. But there were times on Christmas when I was sad. I wanted you to be Santa. When I was younger, we were not around your side of family too often because of the distance. Big Mama would always enjoy us whenever we came around. Sometimes she'd get choked up and say, boy, Sonny, may be gone, but he is still here. You are the spitting image of him, and I would just glean. Kwanzaa is a celebration now. It was just in the beginning stages when you were here. It is a black American holiday week that transists us with richness and wisdom from Christmas through New Year to be used in our everyday lives. Here are the words and their meaning. He says each Kwanzaa words and its meaning. So, the end... 
at the end, he's actually on his Father's Day, and that's in June. But I won't read that because it's, it's, but that's the end today. Thank you very much. You all have any more questions? <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for coming. I'm going to read from Trunk Show, which is um, a novel that a good friend of mine and I wrote in uh, the early 1990s. And it's the second in the Charlotte Sam's Mystery Series. Um, the other author was Louise Vetter, and she was a retired psychologist from Ohio State. And we, were, we worked together here. and. Um, uh, for a long time and were very long-term friends. Unfortunately, she died about three years ago, just after the Ohio State National Championship football game. So, uh, anyway, our sleuths in this mystery novel, and our books were published by Simon and & Schuster. And this one came out in 95. The other one came out in about 93. Uh, that one's called Showcase, and this is called Trunk Show takes place mostly at the Columbus Zoo. And it's, it's funny that I should be doing this reading here in uh, the Wexner Center because it was our intent to focus on um, a place in Columbus with every one of our books. And Louise always wanted to have a body hanging from the scaffolding outside <laughs> of the Wexner Center. She said, I can see it, Cheryl, I can see it. So anyway, I'm, I'm sure she would, would um, think doing the reading here is just fine too. Our sleuths are um, Charlotte Sams, who lives in Columbus and is a freelance writer. And she lives with her husband, Walt, and their son, Tyler, who's about 12. And um, her sort of sidekick is this retired uh, psychologist, Lou Torreson. So um, I'll um, read from the beginning of the book, the prologue, and then um, the first chapter. And if you can't hear me, I hope you'll wave or something. Most summer nights at the Columbus Zoo are dark and quiet, with few lights and even fewer staff. Even so, security workers enter every building except the reptile house at some point during their shift, just to make sure all is well. All they want to know about the snakes and lizards is that their door is locked. On this night, the security workers' inspection of building interiors reveal nothing unusual. They could not know that whatever action would take place at the zoo that night would be 30 feet up on the roof of the pachyderm building. That's where, shortly before midnight, the elephant keeper was startled by the response to a little speech he had just made. The response was loud, threatening, over the top. 
Obviously, his remarks had been far more enraging than he had expected. Maybe his timing had been a little off, he thought. He rose with slow and deliberate movements in hopes that his apparent calm would be contagious. He didn't want any more surprises. Slowly he leaned over to pick up several items they had with them and prepared to leave. But he never had a chance to straighten up. He was shoved violently from the side, which caused him to lurch over the edge of the roof, one hand scrambling helplessly to pull himself back. There wasn't even enough time for him to cry out before he hit the rock-hard dirt surface of the yard below. He died on impact. Otherwise, he would have been among the first to note the irony of dying in the yard of the most dangerous animals at the zoo, but by human hands. And this is chapter one. Very early the next morning, the woman that zoo staff called Cheetah Rita spotted Jerry Brobe's body as she walked past the elephant, the African elephant yard on her way to the cheetahs. Jerry's khaki uniform blended so perfectly with the ground on which he lay that even her sharp eyes would have missed him had her attention not been caught by the two elephants who had stationed themselves at his head and feet as though they were standing watch over his body. With her heart pounding in her ears, Cheetah Rita set down the scarred vinyl briefcase and camp stool she always used at the zoo and leaned over the railing for as close a look as possible at Brobst. In her haste, she nearly fell into the yard herself. He didn't seem to be moving at all, and it was with mixed feelings that she considered that he might well be dead. She hadn't actually wanted him to die, she realized, although such a wish had escaped her lips on more than one occasion. (laughs) He looks dead. He looks dead, she thought over and over. But then she reasoned, if he was really dead... The most constant impediment to her research had been removed. Both she and the elephants would be better off without Jerry Brooks, to say nothing of her beloved cheetahs. She sternly told herself to calm down. She would have to tell someone about Brooks. Once his body was removed, the elephants could go back to the business of being elephants instead of acting like gigantic gray guard dogs. Cheetah Rita hated dogs. Who to tell? She had no desire to delay her work with the cheetahs by hiking all the way to the administration building from which that cowboy zoo director and his silly young assistant pretended to run things. On second thought, it might be worth a few moments' delay to get to see them thrown into a proper frenzy at what Brope's death could do to the zoo's image as a family-oriented park. Firmly, she decided not to indulge herself by observing anything but cheetahs, and immediately gathered up her briefcase and stool. She would mention Brobst's body to the first staff member she passed and then get on about her business. This being early morning on a Monday in July, the first staff member she came across was one of the cleanup crew frantically trying to undo the damage done by a horde of summer weekend visitors before the next batch of visitors arrived at 10 a.m. He was concentrating so hard on blowing paper trash into a pile with a leaf blower that he didn't seem to notice tall, thin Cheetah Rita, clad in a camouflage jumpsuit, standing silently in his path. When he looked up, her presence startled him, and he let out a cry, unconsciously raising the nozzle of the blower as though it was the barrel of a gun. She laughed at the gun pointed at her, and the groundskeeper looked embarrassed. Go on, you old thing. Get out of here, he said brusquely resuming his blowing and keeping a wary eye on Cheetah Rita. 
There's a keeper lying in the elephant's yard, was all she said, before shuffling on down the path in rubber boots whose metal fasteners jingled merrily in contrast to the grim news she had just delivered. The groundskeeper didn't know whether to take her seriously or not, but he went to investigate. When Rita looked back, she saw him speaking into his walkie-talkie up by the elephant yard, and already she could see golf carts driven by staff members streaming in that direction from all parts of the zoo. It was a dramatic tableau, colorful carts moving across the green lawns from all directions and converging on the elephant yard. Occasional animal deaths, of course, were inevitable at the Columbus Zoo, but the death of a human was something altogether different. How like Brokes to call attention to himself, even in death, she thought. She knew it wouldn't be long until the whole place would be swarming with outsiders. Among them would be that nosy woman writer who'd been hanging around all summer. Cheetorita had considered her annoying but harmless, but now she knew better. In fact, she wouldn't mind seeing the writer, too, face down in the dirt early some morning at the zoo. So that's how things get started. And um, I think we did the, the murder right off first thing because our first book, um, Showcase, one of the criticisms of, of it was that it took too long to get to the, the good stuff, murder. You know, everybody who reads mysteries, you know, we want to get to that, to that part. So this time we thought, well, we'll, we'll bump him off right away. <laughs> so we did. Okay. Um, this is much later in the book, um, a little more than halfway through, and um, you know. Um, if you're going to write something as large as a novel, you have to make sure that you're going to stay interested in it, you know, as long as a play too, right? So um, there has to be enough in there that's going to keep you, the, the writer, going and, and be interesting for you. And I think that's one of, the, one of the good things about the zoo is that it was a lot of fun to to learn about the zoo and to um, uh, and then be able to talk about that in the book. And that's certainly one of the things that's going on in this chapter. And it's in the middle of the chapter and it begins, up ahead stood the commissary, a two-story cement block building painted a pale yellow with green trim. As the zoo's grocery store, the commissary received and stored all the food consumed by the animals. Each animal house ordered food for its charges from the commissary by the week based on menus made up by Maria Picard. And the commissary delivered it every morning because so much of the food had to be fresh. Inside, it appeared to be one large room stocked like a crowded warehouse with narrow aisles running between tall shelves that were hard to see around or through. Expecting to come across the commissary director or his staff at any moment, Charlotte strolled among bags of dry dog food and towers of huge cans of sweet potatoes and kale stacked clear to the ceiling. Today's deliveries had already been made by this time, but she had expected to find staff members still working. Maybe everybody was still at lunch. The high shelves created canyons between them, and it occurred to her that it would be easy to get lost in there. 
She hadn't yet found any exotic food, but was already convinced that she could make an interesting story out of what the zoo had to go through to feed its multi-species brood. She looked into the refrigerators packed with carrots, turnips, and green beans, and walked between bins of coconuts and onions. Along one wall were bins of apples, oranges, and bananas. She was looking at racks of eggs in a refrigerator when a man's voice right behind her made her jump. Guiltily, she closed the refrigerator door and turned around, expecting to have to explain her snooping to a staff member. Sign here, a man in a delivery uniform said, handing her a pen and a form on a clipboard. She did her best to appear to know what she was doing and nonchalantly signed the delivery slip. He dropped the clipboard on top of a stack of cardboard cartons on a dolly behind him and tilted the dolly, prepared to wheel it away. Where to, he asked. What's in there, Charlotte asked, realizing that she'd not even skimmed the delivery slip. Crickets. Well then, she said confidently, as though that made all the difference, just stack them on that counter there. The delivery man stacked the cartons and left. Charlotte approached the counter, wondering which zoo animals ate crickets and how long before these specimens would go down some greedy gullet. She didn't really care, except that having signed for them, and now hearing the endearing little chirps they were making inside the cartons, somehow made her feel involved in their fate. It occurred to her that she could set the crickets free. Just carry the cartons one by one to the door of the building and open them up on the ground. The crickets would jump away and no one would be the wiser. Until the delivery slip was checked, of course. Luckily, she had signed Blue's name. <laughs> but, if, but if she freed the crickets, then some other animal would go hungry. She didn't know what to do. Obviously, she was not suited for a job where she'd have to make life and death decisions like this, she realized, and decided to bring her commissary visit to a close. It was about time anyway, since the crowded atmosphere was making her eyes play tricks on her. A tower of canned goods had appeared to sway as she walked past it. On the way out, she passed the doors to a walk-in freezer along one wall. Opening the door and looking into the cold and foggy atmosphere inside, she was able to make out stainless steel racks and wheeled carts, but was not able to identify the wrapped bundles they contained. And what were those four-foot-long objects hanging from hooks in the ceiling? Carcasses, she supposed. Beef carcasses, probably. Taking no chances, she propped the door open with a handy giant can of chicken broth and walked into the freezer. She shivered. The only light was from the open door, but she could read the labels on the wrapped packages, which all seemed to contain beef, horse meat, and various kinds of fish. And it was the carcasses that hung unwrapped from the ceiling hooks. They just didn't look like they would yield cuts of meat she was familiar with. She'd asked, have to ask Dennis, the commissary director, if they were the carcasses of horses, she decided. She turned to leave just as the door swung shut. She screamed, ran to the door, and tried unsuccessfully to work the handle. Then she pounded on the door with her fist for a long time, but nobody opened it. She was trapped. That door didn't close itself. Someone had made good on the taped threat. Trying not to panic in the frigid darkness, she frantically ran her hands along both sides of the door, looking for a door lock release or at least a light switch. She found the light switch and turned it on, but the pale light did not reveal any way to get out of her frozen cell. 
Ten minutes before, she had been contemplating rescuing crickets, and now she was in desperate need of rescuing herself. Charlotte was furious and more than a little frightened. Who would do this to her? Most important, how was she going to get out? It was cold in there. She could see her breath in the frosty air. All she was wearing was a jumper over a short sleeved blouse. Even her shoes were flimsy. How was she supposed to know she'd be needing a parka and mucklucks when she dressed for work that July morning? Recalling that keepers occasionally froze fish in blocks of ice so that the polar bears would have the challenge of working to get at their food, she had a sudden image of her own body encased in ice and providing an afternoon's entertainment for the bears. She began rubbing her arms and stamping her feet to warm them, but soon that was not enough. She decided she'd have a better chance of not freezing if she kept moving, so she began walking around and around the freezer, between the carts and racks containing bundles of meat and fish, and among the carcasses hanging from the ceiling. The floor had frost on it, and sometimes she would slip and lurch a little to one side or the other, and would brush up against the carcasses. It was disgusting. On she walked. She tried to calculate how long she could stay alive in the freezer. She figured she'd freeze to death before she suffocated, but surely someone would need to open the freezer before the end of their workday. How long would it take? Walt knew she was coming to the zoo today, but how long might it take for anyone to think to look for her in the freezer? Boy, what she wouldn't give to see Walter coming in that door to see anyone coming in that door. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Oh, <laughs> she gets out, yeah. She does, yeah. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time. Would you? 15 minutes? It's up to you. Would you like to hear a little more? Or would you... Um, this is from still later. Um, the, uh, Jack Hanna appears in our book um, <laughs> as Jack Hanna. Uh, and um, even though he um, had not yet made the move to director emeritus, we did that to him, Louise and I, so that we could, could have another director that resembled a boss that we had had at OSU. <laughs> And that man's name is Stitcher, okay? And so you meet Stitcher here. Um, let's see, good place to start. Ah. So Charlotte has lined up this interview with Stitcher who had avoided her all summer long. And she has made some allegations about him, not about the murder, but about something else. And she's talked to him about that over the phone and so for the first time he's felt pressure to let her talk to him, to interview him. And um, so she's getting ready to, to, uh, to go. She woke Tyler and told him to hurry if he expected her to drop him off at the pool on her way to the zoo. He did hurry and 15 minutes late they were on their way. As he got out of the car at Olympic a few blocks north of the house he said, no, Mom, I won't go off the high diving platform. No, Mom, I will not spend too much time playing video games. No, Mom, I will not eat junk for lunch. Yes, Mom, I will be home by dinner time. 
He smiled and headed in the door to the pool complex. How much easier it was, she thought wryly, if you trained them to answer your questions before they were even asked. If only the people she interviewed would be just as cooperative. She arrived at Stitcher's office in the administration building five minutes earlier. This being Saturday, his and Stevie's secretary was not on duty. As she stood in the waiting area outside his office, <clears throat> Charlotte could hear Stitcher shouting, and then I'll strip you of every shred of human dignity. I'll hum humiliate you. I'll eviscerate you. I'll... And since no one responded, she assumed that he was shouting into the phone. But in a few mi minutes, the coordinator of volunteers came out of Stitcher's office, blushing with his eyes downcast. There was an eerie silence in the little waiting area. Finally, Charlotte decided it was safe to go in. Although, considering the topic she had to bring up, who could be sure? She rapped on the edge of Sticker's acoustical screen at the doorway to his office. Come in, he said. He sounded testy, but he wasn't shouting. His office door looked as though he had tried to bring the Southwest to the Midwest. There were Native American paintings on horses on the wall, paintings of horses on the wall, a Navajo blanket draped across the back of a couch, several potty, pottery pieces scattered about, and a cow skull, complete with longhorns, mounted on the wall behind his desk. You seem to have brought Tulsa with you to Columbus, she said. Are you a collector? No, not really. These are just a few things I picked up. I went to school in New Mexico and started off working for zoos in Southern California. Where did you start in zoo work? A tiny zoo in San Bernardino. I worked mostly with the hoofstock, zebras, antelope, that sort of animal. I had always been around horses a great deal, and the other hoofers just seemed like horse variations to me, so I really got into it. Then I moved down to San Diego to work in its public education program. I was there for several years, working my way up to heading that program. It was during those years that I really came to believe that people need to understand that zoo animals are not pets, but wild animals. I've heard that you don't believe in anthropomorphizing the animals. That's right. All of this naming business, for instance, has got to stop. But doesn't naming some of the animals help the public feel closer to the animals and then shell out more money for their care? And I know you need the money for their care, without a doubt. But instead of making people think of the animals as human, we ought to be educating the public so that people can appreciate the animals for what they really are. I resent having to tart them up as furry humanoids or other kinds of entertainers. Not unlike Cheetah Rita, Char Charlotte thought. She bet the zoo director and the zoo groupie had more in common than either one of them knew. It sounds like this is very important to you, she said. You bet. I'm sick to death of seeing zoo visitors ooing and aahing over the more beautiful animals, like those dumb bears, and ignoring our less photogenic animals, especially since the public puts its money on the pretty animals, too. Do you know that koala bears sleep about 20 hours a day? I think we all ought to just attach a stuffed koala to a branch and tell everyone we have a koala exhibit. Nobody would know the difference, since the live koalas rarely move anyway. Every zoo in the nation could have a koala exhibit. We'd all be rich. Charlotte laughed and said she thought he'd hit on some very creative zoo financing. That seemed to encourage him to continue in the same vein. And the pandas. We can't forget the pandas. P 
People go gaga over pandas, even though it's so easy to see that nature has set us up to love them. What do you mean? Well, we tend to appreciate animals that look like human babies. For instance, those that have heads that are large in proportion to their bodies and eyes larger in proportion to their heads, like human babies do. And pandas are a textbook case. There's research evidence for our preferring these kinds of animals, Charlotte asked. Of course. Do you think I make this stuff up? S scientists think those preferences reflect characteristic that has evolved because it helps us human remain viable as a species. The characteristic is that we feel protective of our young, those big-eyed, big-headed babies we have, which is very important given how long human babies have to remain under the protection of adults before they can survive on their own. The same features in animals trigger the same emotional response in us. That's why so many of us love animals like pandas. Personally, he said, I prefer turtles any day. But if we've evolved that way, what chance do we have of changing? Well, we can stop efforts that encourage people to think of animals as human. In fact, I would be in favor of abolishing zoos altogether if they weren't the only thing standing between wild animals and extinction. In spite of the fact that people can learn a great deal from coming to zoos? Yes, in spite of that, people would be better off learning about animals from books or movies or TV programs. They don't need to see animals in the flesh to learn what they look like and how they live. But isn't it disruptive to the animals to have camera operators moving in on their home territories? How can that be better than having the animals in the zoo? Stitcher snorted. The operative word here is home. Those habitats we put together for the animals here are very artificial. They can't move, away the can't move around the way they would if they were home in Africa or Asia or even here in this country. They get fed regularly every day, so they lose all their hunting skills. It's such a fake environment. If that's how you feel about zoos, why do you continue to be involved with them? Because there is no wild left. Other than in zoos, there's no place left for wild animals to live. That's why zoos are important, Stitcher said. Biodiversity. He looked at Charlotte and smiled for the first time in the interview. Don't you agree? Certainly, she said, except for snakes. I wouldn't care if every snake in the world became extinct. That's silly, he said. But honest, she said. Thank you, Cheryl. Mm -hmm. That was really good. Thank you. I don't know who the murderer is. That's the strategy. Yeah. Yeah, both of them are out of print now. So. And I believe Columbus Public Library also has writings inspired by, not necessarily about her dog, 
and she's also reading a Thurber story, The Dog That Bit People. Um, our colleague Rick Brown has also written a couple essays about his um, dog, Henri, so he's going to be sharing this with us also. So thanks uh, for coming this week, and I hope to see you next week. I have to look your